Generations Church exists to glorify God in our community, to make disciples of Jesus, and to multiply churches so that the next generation is equipped to glorify God better than we did. Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. My name is Rob Samuelson. I'm an elder here at Generations Church. Joining me, as always, is my good friend and the lead pastor at Generations, Mr. Jeff Luddington. There, I think that was smooth, man, right? That was so good. Oh, man. All right. So... Question from the classroom series. We're still going. We've got some questions from the classroom. We've got some questions that people have emailed us, and we'll tell you how to do that later on today. But uh, our question today is this. Is it okay to sin if you are trying to prevent a greater sin? All right. So I feel like that is so open that we need to set some boundaries. And so here, when I hear that question... The, my mind went to this, and, and this has happened more than once, but I, in pastoral settings, I have sat down sometimes with people, and, and the, the one that came to mind was a guy who had had a repeated affair on his wife, and so he'd been unfaithful repeatedly, and he said that he was done with this, and let's assume that he was, uh, and he didn't want to confess the affair to his wife because it would hurt her so deeply, and so that's one example. So can I sin... To prevent a greater sin, can I keep the sin, keep the secret so that I don't hurt my wife? So my first thought was, I was thinking big historical thing. I was thinking people hiding Jews from the Nazis back in World War II and lying to Nazi soldiers, saying that there's nobody here. That's the difference between a math teacher and a pastor. <laughs> I go right to the to to some loser cheating on his wife. No, anyhow. So all right, um, you know, your idea reminded me of the underground church in Afghanistan today. That's a that's a modern version, uh, a little different. It would be in my in the, in the Afghan church example, it would be Christians hiding their worship of God uh, to stay alive. Okay. Another thought I had, um, and this was in the the news a while ago but just people thinking that it's okay to do something like bomb an abortion clinic as they're trying to stop abortions. Hmm. That's not okay, huh? All right, so we should talk <laughs> about that. That's good. All right. So here's the passage we're going to use today. Um, it is a pretty well-known one in the beginning of the book of Joshua. It's Joshua chapter 2. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Joshua, everybody pretty much knows Moses, uh, it's the end of Moses' life. Uh, Joshua is Moses' assistant. And at the end of the first five books of the Bible, Moses dies. And the next book, the sixth book of the Bible, is Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua now assumes leadership over God's people, Israel. And they are starting to conquer the land that God has promised them. So Joshua 2, why don't you pick up the story there, Rob? And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. A prostitute in, what's that city again? Jericho? No, not that. I was trying to get you to say the other word. I know word. you were. Man. All you right. Made, last week you made me say Mount Hor, and oh, now see, and, and I, I pronounced it Shittim. All right, we're going with that. may not be correct. <laughs> no, but it's better than what it's it looks safer. like. All right. So here's where we are. So spies go into the land of Canaan. Now, Joshua, this leader, sends out some spies into Canaan for a reference point. God promised all the way back in Genesis 12, before Moses, Joshua, any of them, promised a man named Abraham 
the father of our faith, that Canaan would be the land that Israel would inherit. But it would be hundreds of years later, after even 400 years of slavery. So hundreds of years go by. Joshua is now in charge. God is leading through Joshua to the people into the land of Canaan to inherit their land or get their land. But there's people there. And so they're going to have to conquer the land according to what God says. So spies are sent out. They go to a prostitute's house. I'm not touching that right there. Like, I don't know what happened there. Why? I don't know. But in this story, the it's a little bit of an upside-down story. So in this story, the spies and the prostitute are the good guys, and the king and the others are bad guys. So it's a little different. But the spies are Israelites. They go to, a, go to Rahab, who is a prostitute's house. She is going to hide them from others. That's, that's our story. Go ahead. So jumping back in at verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I know not where they, where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in, in order on roof on her roof or on the roof roof man cannot roof, say roof. that last line sorry roof roof uh, no, so just dog. just to kind of summarize the Canaanites hear about the fact that the Israelites there's a couple of Israelites in their city the king sends out some people to find the spies uh, Rahab lies to the people who ask about the spies she says they've left the city when she knows they haven't um, she sends the men to look for them on a wild goose chase while she hides the spies on her roof and verse 7 says that, So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So the outcome of this story, so that you summarize it really well, spies are hidden by Rahab. Uh, she lies, right? I think that's, that's the sin that gets talked about. Okay, she lied. That's considered a sin. But... The outcome of the story is that the Israelite spies remain hidden and the men sent by the king of Jericho are misled, right? And so she lies on behalf of them to the king's men. Um, so that is in this question, in the context of this question, that is the smaller sin, the lie, that prevents a greater sin, which would have been the death of the Israelite spies. So that's the question is when, when is that the right thing versus in and you know the opposite of this story would be she tells the truth and they kill the the israelites so continuing on in verses eight and nine before the men lay down she came up to them on the roof and said to the men i know that the lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you so in this passage she reveals something really important that helps us understand if it was okay to lie in that situation. Absolutely. I think this, uh, verse 9, is the key verse for our question today. We know that the Lord has given you the land. So let's zoom out a little bit. Let's unpack this. She is not an Israelite. She's not Jewish. She is not a worshiper of who we call God, right? I have no idea if she has any faith. She's a prostitute. That's all we know. Land of Canaan in Jericho. 
Um, so we have nothing to believe that she believes in God, worships this God, but here's what she says. We, that would be the Canaanite people or the people of Jericho or whoever she's referring to, we, outsiders, not God's people, we know that the Lord, specific, and that is the Lord when you read it, isn't just a title. We're, we're talking about the God of the Bible. We know that the Lord has given you the land. So here's what I think is necessary to see. There is a broad consensus around what God is doing. So the Israelite people know what God is doing. Joshua's leading them into the land. He sent spies out in accordance with what God has been telling him. He sends spies into the land. They're going to go out and, and look at the condition of the city, in this case, the city of Jericho. They're going to go take it. Okay. The people of Jericho, the, the Canaanites who are in the land, they know what God is doing. And so there is broad consensus around what God is doing in this moment. I think that's key to understanding our question today. So in verses 10 and 11, we have Rahab still speaking to the spies. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you went, uh, before you, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to uh, Sehan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She professes God to be God here, right? Like, so this Rahab the prostitute, we, we know two things about her at this, well, three, I guess, but so we know her name, we know she's her, her, her chosen profession, and we know she lives in Jericho. Okay, so we don't know anything else about her, but whenever she identifies things about herself, she identifies herself as someone from Jericho. So the average person in Jericho does not worship the God of the Bible. But she makes this proclamation, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So clearly your God is God. Like that's what she's saying. Your God is right. Your God is, you know, kicking butt and taking names. Like this has already happened from the, this is, if you're unfamiliar with the biblical narrative, this is roughly 50 years after Israel was in slavery for hundreds of years, right? So they get out of slavery, they wander around the desert because of their disobedience to God for 40 years, and now they're working their way into the land as God is leading them, and she makes this almost like a profession of faith, right? For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. So she is saying, listen, we know God has been conquering from Egypt through the desert to the other, to the other people that have been conquered, Sihon and Og, now he's coming towards us, and, and when we heard of this, we melted because we know God's going to do it. Not only is there general consensus about what's going on amongst God's people, but the, like even not God's people know what God is doing. So as the story continues in 12 through 14, Rahab, still speaking to the spies, says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. I like, I love how this story plays out. If several verses earlier that Rahab the prostitute had done, had asked this 
favor of the people ahead of time. Hey, I'll lie for you if when you guys come in and wipe us out, you save my family. That would be transactional, right? Instead, she does what is right, what she believes is right, what she sees as God doing, which is, you know, there's broad consensus around what God is saying and what God is doing here. On the other side of doing the right thing and putting herself at risk, selflessly putting herself out there, she asks, hey, when you guys come in and do wipe out this nation, we just let my family live, right? So she, it isn't transactional. She's already done the thing, right? And she's already protected them. She's just asking like, hey, listen, I'm on your team. And will you remember that when you come in and remember my family? But when they agree, uh, you know, our life for yours, even a death, um, when the Lord gives us the land, there's this implied approval by those who represent God and his people over what she has done, saying that she has done the right thing. So not only did she do it leaning into what God, had hit, what God was doing, but then those who represent God have their stamp of approval on it and bless her in that. And so there's this sense that she did the right thing. So we're going to skip ahead in the story a little bit. There's a lot of stipulations between the spies and Rahab as to here's what you have to do, right. otherwise it's not cord. on us. Yep. Yeah, Scarlet Court, all that. Um, and then in verse 23, the spies have left the city. Uh, then the two men, spies, returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This recognition of what God is doing, they see Rahab's actions as, a, as symbolic of God's sovereignty over this whole event, right? So there's this sense of Rahab's actions as affirming how much God is in this, like even this woman protected us, like God is so in this because of this, right? And so we see this story play out. Now, what are Rahab's sins? I mean, I see a, a prostitute as being kind of the dominant thing that defines her in a, in a sense of what God calls us not to do, right? So seems like her lying to the people is probably the, the least of her issues. But what really she does is gets on board with what God is doing. She does it at her own risk, right? At the, the cost is on her. She's protecting people. If she gets caught, they'll kill her along with the spies, right? Puts herself out there so that she can be on the right side of things. On the other side of doing the right thing, she asks, really, that God would honor that or that the people would honor that, that God's people would honor that and protect her on the other side of it. So um, the sins are small. The cause is big. And, and the cause isn't something that's for her. It's for others. So... In this story, it does look like her sin, lying, um, does end up leading to what God wanted to have yeah. happen in this. So how do we know that we're acting on God's behalf and not just sinning and then making an excuse for sinning or trying to justify our sin? Yeah. There's this great passage in Philippians 2 that is often used when talking about the condescension of Christ or the humility of Christ, Christ becoming flesh. But it's instruction to the church in Philippi, and Paul writes to them, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. 
He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we ask this question about uh, committing one thing in order to present something greater, sinning, right, lying in the case of Rahab or whatever it might be, you know, you could go as far as you and I were talking about earlier, like treason. <laughs> like, you, it depends on how you ver- view her sin, but she's, what is she doing and what is she preventing? And so three things we learn from Philippians, and they're consistent with the story of Rahab. One, you're not doing something that benefits yourself. You're doing something that benefits others, right? So you're not doing something out of selfish gain. In fact, the second point would be you're the one being put at risk. Rahab was at risk, right? So when you do something, put yourself at risk and only benefits others, then the third thing would be that it seems to be fulfilling God's plan, uh, overall plan, like he's taking the land of Canaan at that point, or really, you know, gross injustices, like massive scale injustices, right? You talked about, you know, Nazi Germany or, you know, the, you know, the church not being able to worship. Those are global big things. So three things to kind of measure your decision. Is this something that puts you at risk, not someone else? Number two, does it, does it benefit others and not yourself? And does this fulfill God's work in the world? So those three things I think should guide our conversation when we're asking about sinning to prevent a greater sin. So going back to our examples that we said at the beginning, um, two of them that don't seem to fit into those three things that you talked about, um, lying to prevent hurting somebody else, right. uh, and bombing an abortion clinic, taking that into your Both own hands. Both bad ideas. Uh, the couple that send, seemed to fit were people hiding Jews during World War II and the Afghan underground church continuing to meet even right. though it was against the law. Yeah, and in the, in the example of a spouse keeping the secret about sin in order to prevent a hurt, typically what we all see from the outside is someone who doesn't want to admit what they did wrong. It's really selfish. It's really covering up their own thing, but they're trying to make it sound selfless by saying it's protecting someone else, Right. Bombing an abortion clinic, there are other ways, right? And, and so there are legal means to achieve protecting the unborn. In fact, bombing an abortion clinic isn't going to even slow down abortions. It might slow them that next day, but, you know, abortions are going to happen wherever. So is there a legal means to achieve this? It, or, or, you know, in the case of bombing an abortion clinic, I think that really is somebody wants to do that. They've got something inside their heart they're trying to achieve, right? Or somebody's hiding the sin. But the Hiding Jews in World War II, uh, an additional one would be Underground Railroad and slavery, right? It was typically white Christians uh, helping black slaves in an Underground Railroad setting, or uh, it was a lot of uh, German Christians and others that were helping German Jews, and they were hiding them from German Nazis, lots of German categories there. But there's this, I'm at risk for your benefit, because a great massive injustice, slavery or, you know, worship or, in, I would even go so far as to say the Uyghurs in China, which, you know, kind of get, com- the conversation's up right now because of the Olympics, but Uyghurs are Muslims. They're not Jews or Christians, they're Muslims. I don't think they're on, like, God's side of things. I think they're they're misled about what God is, but, but a genocide of Uyghurs it, and I don't know the extent of all that, or slave labor, or, the, or all that, like, that's just wrong. Like, preventing 
global injustice. But here's what we have when we talk about the Afghani church and hiding Jews. When Nazis were, when it was a thing and, and they were persecuting during the Holocaust, that'd be a, during World War II, global, not only Christianity, but the world knew that was wrong. That's why we had a world war. Global consensus about that, right? Wasn't just me thinking this is a good idea. They're like, this is bad, right? The Afghan underground church, you know, being martyred. We just, there's global consensus that's wrong to do. And so when you put yourself at risk for something that is clearly wrong, not, again, if you go back to bombing an abortion clinic, globally, most of, 99% of Christianity would tell you, bad idea, right? You can't be the outlier in that case. Um, but there's big picture, big values that guide this conversation. Right. So those guidelines that you gave earlier, um, something that benefits others, not mm-hmm. ourselves, something that uh, is costly to us or risk. The cost is on us. The risk is on us. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. something that fulfills God's plan. I think, you know, we only hit a couple of examples, but you could take any example mm-hmm. and apply those and see if, if what you're doing is the right thing to do. And I think it's yeah. important to note here that there is a difference between somebody desiring to sin and looking for a biblical excuse or a biblical totally. way to hide it. And somebody who wants to be obedient to God, but is looking at it saying, I don't see any other option besides having to lie. Maybe a, a yeah. bank robber saying, is there anyone else in the bank? And someone saying, no, there no. isn't, knowing right. that people are hiding in the back. So something to think about. We, uh, we want to thank you for listening. Um, we are receiving questions from our listeners. We want to keep encouraging that. So questions at generations.email is where you would send those. We'd like you to share, like, subscribe to our podcast, and uh, we will have another one out every Tuesday. We thank you for being part of this, and we pray that God will bless you this upcoming week. Mm